The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Total Democracy in America is only partly a book of America. It's also a book of comparative thinking, and it's a book of theoretical invention. So Democracy in America is a theory of democracy, and parts of it are about America, and parts of it talks about theoretical genius pushing through. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. I recently took the time to read Recollections. It's an account from Alexis de Tocqueville, from his time as a politician during the revolutions of 1848. It's one of those books that many overlook, but once I realized it existed, it was only a matter of time before I knew I'd read it. That's the thing about Alexis de Tocqueville. For anyone interested in learning about democracy, he has almost a surreal attraction. So when Olivier Zanz wrote a new biography of de Tocqueville, It certainly attracted the attention of people like me. For those who have read de Tocqueville extensively, you've probably come across Olivier's work without realizing it. He has edited many of de Tocqueville's works and written extensively about him. Olivier Zanz is the James Madison Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Virginia. He has spent his life studying American history, but the study of de Tocqueville was always his passion. Our conversation explores de Tocqueville's life and work to consider what he understood about democracy and what he can still teach us today. Now, if you like this podcast, please give the show a five-star rating and review. You can also send questions and comments to me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Olivier Zanz. Olivier Zanz, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Olivier, what impresses me so much about this book, The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville, is how you weave together the experiences with his thoughts through his writings. But It's not just his ideas, but it's like the meanings behind those experiences that lead to those ideas. In the book, you have this fabulous line where you write, Tocqueville, who had crossed the ocean in part to determine whether he could ever live in a democracy. I want to think about that line for just a moment. Why did Tocqueville want to learn whether he could live in a democracy? Well, it's a, a, a two-step two step answer to this. So Tocqueville 
was born in 1805. During the French Revolution, during the period of the terror in 1793-94, many of his family members were sent to the guillotine. His great-grandfather, his name is not familiar to an American audience, his name is Malzerbe, but he was director of the book trade under Louis XV, and he protected Voltaire and Rousseau and the philosopher from censorship. He was a great man, himself a botanist and a great writer, and he was a great man. He came out of retirement to be the king's lawyer during the Louis XVI's trial. Well, his great-grandfather, his grandparents, uncles and aunts all went to the guillotine. Parents were freed from jail just the day before they were going to be sent to the guillotine just because of the fall of Robespierre. So it was just a matter of a day. So several years later, well, almost 10 years later, so he was born, he had two older brothers. All the family came from the highest ranks of the, both the military nobility on the father's side and the nobility of the sword, as they called it, and the administrative nobility on the mother's side, the great Malzerm, as the director of the book trade, the nobility of the robe, as they called it. And to these people, united into a single nobility during the French Revolution, actually, and many of them had gone to exile. To these people, equality, Republican equality was a bad word. It meant leveling. It meant the end of their privileges. It meant the end of their caste as nobles. It meant the end of them. And Tocqueville believed in this, like all of his family members. And I think what he discovered in this country I mean, I'm sure what it destroyed in this country is a different meaning of equality. Now, of course, equality, this country was nothing but equal according to our definition of equality. And so it takes a certain leap of avoiding not just anachronism, but realizing that Tocqueville was no fool. He understood there was slavery. He understood that all of these inequalities existed. But still, equality in this country for the people who benefited from it that is from a large, much larger fragment of the population than in France for the white males of the country, meant uplifting, not leveling. It gave them the possibility of exercising their freedom, of exercising their liberty, of making the best of what they could do themselves. It freed them from being stuck at birth in a lower status. So because aristocracy is a chain. Tocqueville has that symmetry of the chain. And there are links from one segment of the chain to the other, but you don't move up or down. You remain where you are for centuries, including the same place. So you have families, aristocratic families, where for several generations, they have the same families of servants. You're a servant from father to son. You're a duke from father to son. You know what uh, Tom Paine used to say? about nobility, he said, you know, a general or a judge, you have some idea of who the person is. But if you talk about the duke, you can't even say whether he's a man or a baby. So Tocqueville discovered in this country that equality could have a different meaning. It was not necessarily leveling. It was actually the opposite. It could be uplifting. It could give people the possibility of fighting for themselves and moving up. So in a sense, Tocqueville in his book has it beautifully said, at some extreme level of abstraction, equality and liberty are one and the same, because if you are, everybody's equal, you are completely free, and if you're completely free, you're everybody's equal. Now, in real life, that's a different story. Now, Tocqueville, you know, that's another thing I've had to explain 
Total Democracy in America is only partly a book on America. It's also a book of comparative thinking, and it's a book of theoretical invention. So Democracy in America is a theory of democracy, and parts of it are about America, and parts of it talks about theoretical genius pushing through. In America, he saw many things, and he missed many things, amazingly so. And yet, the power of intelligence made up for it. And often came down with the right judgment, despite the wrong observation. It's also very interesting. I try to illustrate that in the book. One of the remarkable things about democracy in America is that it was written when de Tocqueville was so young. I mean, he was only 25, I think you've already mentioned. How did his youth influence the impressions that he had from the United States and about the ideas of democracy? Okay, so here I have to say two things. One is that Tocqueville was 25 when he came here. He turned 26 in the Michigan forest in the middle of nowhere, a year after the uh, 1830 uh, revolution in France, exactly to the day. And he kind of relived this revolutionary moment in the middle of the Michigan forest and the solitude of it, because it was the end of civilization then. He returned to France, though he was subject to depression. And it took him a solid 18 months before he could sort of put himself together, go through his notes, lock himself up in his parents' attic, and try writing a book. He was not at all sure that he would succeed. He was not at all sure of himself, quite the contrary, which actually made him nice, I mean, to realize that he too struggled. <laughs> you know, writing is all about delayed gratification. <laughs> and so that was that. But then he wrote the book in two volumes. One was published in 1835, by then he was 30. And the second volume was published in 1840, by then he was 35. The first volume is the closest to the American trip. And if you read the travel notes and the letters home, which I've actually edited in a big 700-page volume, you will recognize many sections of his travel notes in his narrative. So there's more of a descriptive part in the first book. The second book is very much influenced by England and two trips to England, especially the discovery of the poverty in Manchester and Birmingham. And Tocqueville, in volume two, the great formulation that the next aristocracy to fear is the industrial aristocracy is not at all a prediction of the American Gilded Age. It is a description of industrial England, as he saw it during two trips in 1833 and 1835. Uh, So this is why I'm saying that much of democracy in America can be read at many different levels, the level of description, a level of comparative political science and a level of pure theory. Democracy in America comes in two volumes. Do you consider those two different books, or do you consider those two volumes of the same book? Well, this is, of course, a question that has occupied Tocqueville scholars. Cy Drescher, years ago, is a historian in Pittsburgh, a very good historian, published a long essay arguing that it was really two books. So among Tocqueville scholars, you are in one camp or the other. I personally think this is one book, but I certainly see the point of people saying it's two. The only reason I think it's one book, it's no big deal, is because when Tokyo finished volume two, he decided not to write a preface to it. 
And he said, there's nothing to preface to it because he had already written a long preface to volume one. And so he thought of it, these two books as one. So that's good enough for me. <laughs> so you mentioned that de Tocqueville turned 26, I think it was, in the forests of Michigan, in the wilderness. And it reminded me of a passage from your book where you wrote, only in the wilderness did he think seriously of Americans in the plural and the resulting encounter of cultures. It's something that people think a lot of about de Tocqueville today, has a big influence in terms of his thoughts about slavery, Native Americans, and others. How did de Tocqueville reconcile America's commitment to liberty and political equality with its treatment of American Indians and slavery? I'll start with the Native Americans. Tocqueville was not entirely, well, Tocqueville was resigned to their fate. Now, he had, I would say, four encounters with Native Americans, one before departure, where he was reading Rousseau and Chateaubriand, and James Fenimore Cooper, and uh, had this idea of the noble savage very much in it. He and his travel companion Beaumont had their first encounter with Native Americans in upstate New York. And he uh, was thoroughly distressed because they were beggars and drunk, asking for alms and looking bad. And it was nothing like the noble savage that he had imagined he would find in the American wilderness, even though he was in upstate New York. And he expressed his dismay. He said, what happened to this people? even though he had some idea. So the first encounter was a book encounter. The second encounter was this big disappointment. The third one was on the Great Lakes and in the Michigan forest. And there he saw Native Americans in their habitat and in their territory, even though it was shrinking. And he liked it. He had Indian guides for the forest to go to Saginot, to go to the end of the frontier. So he had a sense of what tribal life was like. He witnessed also efforts by ministers, both Catholics and Protestants, to convert them and so on and so forth. And the last encounter was very distressful because he witnessed the Trail of Tears as he saw the Choctaws crossing the Mississippi. So he saw Jackson's, you know, implementations of Jackson's policies. But then he met Sam Houston on the steamboat on the Mississippi, and he had a long conversation with him on Indian life, which was really interesting. He couldn't have found anybody better than Sam Houston. But by and large, he felt that England's reluctance going to sort of agriculture, sedentary life, and so on and so forth, was their doom. Now, I know Native Americans, historians, have tried to reverse that picture of them. Tucker was buying it. But he condemned Americans for this kind of violence of violating treaties all the time, making treaties and not respecting them, and this kind of legal holocaust, so to speak. And he said this in no uncertain terms in Chapter 10. But he was somehow resigned to it. African-Americans, that's a different story. He felt that African-Americans would rebel, that Indians would do, but African-Americans were not. And he predicted in this last chapter a form of civil war. He saw a waste war in the South, not a war between the states. But nonetheless, he predicted this outcome. 
And in his correspondence at the end of his life, with Charles Sparks, the military minister who had become Harvard president, and Charles Sumner, who actually visited Tocqueville in France after the caning, he was very worried about the coming of the Civil War. He was asking his informant, how is that going? Is that going to happen? And so he was afraid about the future of the Union. So I don't know the extent to which he answers your question, but he didn't want his democracy to go belly up, you know, and that was the fear. And so I think we can very much relate to him, can't we? No, definitely, I think so. I thought it was interesting how you brought up the assumptions that de Tocqueville had about the noble savage, if you will, before he came to America, because it's something that I think of as very tied to Rousseau, who's another one of the great political thinkers of our time, or of history's time, I guess I should say. But de Tocqueville was not extraordinarily well-read when he came to America. To be honest, I was incredibly astonished that you said that de Tocqueville had to go back and actually read for the first time many of what were considered to be the classics throughout his life. How would he have approached democracy in America differently? How would he have approached even just his journey to the United States if he'd had a broader education or had read more about political theory before he had had his experience in the United States? Well, you know, perhaps what matters best is the outcome. Now, I think Tocqueville did read Rousseau because you see traces of Rousseau throughout democracy in America. He never mentioned Rousseau by name because Rousseau was anathema to Tocqueville's readers because many of the aristocrats who read Tocqueville to understand America blame Rousseau for the revolution, you know. This is Voltaire's fault, this is Rousseau's fault. This is the popular saying, actually. La faute à Voltaire, la faute à Rousseau. Now, it's a little bit of a mystery. I mentioned early in the interview my mentor, François Furet, I remember Furet in the 60s and 70s going through Tocqueville's archives, trying to find Tocqueville's reading notes and feeling very frustrated by finding instead discoveries of landscape with so many fences and how many fences and how many acres of cultivated land. And, <laughs> and how does a guy figure out a political theory from the number of fences? But there you have Tocqueville. And so he read for entertainment. He loved to read lighter literature, maxims and whatnot. And he read for style. He was obsessed with improving his style. So he read the great orators, the great Catholic preachers. And he compared himself at some point to a politician who was at a Marshal Salt, who was at some point Minister of Foreign Affairs. And he said, I'm like him learning geography when Minister of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> so the point of it is that in some ways, you wonder whether Tocqueville would have been different or better had he read more ahead of time. He said several times to friends in his correspondence that when he was working on some topic, he couldn't possibly read anything that was written on it, or he would lose all talent. So basically, the way his mind worked is that he had to reinvent the wheels. Well, that's it. So, you know, when I direct a dissertation, which done all my life, I tell Sprite Susan, don't reinvent the wheels. But sometimes you have to reinvent the wheels. I feel the same way myself sometimes. I have to reinvent the wheels and figure out what I want to say and then check whether somebody else has said it too or differently afterwards. So that's the way Tocqueville worked. And obviously, nobody was smarter than Tocqueville. 
So, you know, he was super smart. He always caught up with whatever he needed to read, just in time. But yes, he was not an erudite. And you think that he wanted it that way so he could think clearly. One of the things that your book does really well is it actually walks through some of his other works. And I don't think that I'm alone when I admit that the only works that I've read from Tocqueville are Democracy in America and The Old Regime and the French Revolution. Those are the only two that I've really read from de Tocqueville before reading your book. But your book explores some of his other works, particularly the prison report that they actually wrote when they came back from the United States. And you have a quote where you write, the report highlighted that all criminals in the American penitentiary were treated equally regardless of what their rank had been in free society. In prison, they were all reduced to the lowest common denominator. The American penitentiary then was the creation of an inverted America. I was astonished the way that you used the prison report to help explain Tocqueville's views on equality. Can you help explain a little bit about what those views were? Well, of course, the prison report didn't talk at all about the privilege of bail. In some ways, the wealthy people could escape prison. Nonetheless, the idea that regardless of your rank, you were treated equally once in jail, that was right. And that really surprised Tocqueville because in France, exactly, it was exactly the opposite. When you were born with a rank, you kept it no matter where you were. On the other hand, when Tocqueville wrote the prison report, actually, it's mostly Beaumont who wrote it because Tocqueville was a bit depressed when he came back from America. But Tocqueville had his hand in it. And you could think of it, you know, if, as I said earlier, equality is a springboard for liberty, because I don't care whether your dad is a lot of money, I don't have any, but I can do what I want with my life, and I'm going to beat you to that game, okay? That's equality for you, because my step is not going to stop me from doing this, because I was born in the lower rank. But in prison, no, that's not possible. Equality which will not give you freedom because you're stuck right there. And so there's a group of scholars, some of them have published their work in the Journal of Democracy, arguing a similar point. So I'm certainly not the first one who made this remark, but they were right in arguing this similar point, that you can see the prison report as an anti-democracy. I kind of built on their work a little bit there. So it's an interesting springboard in the various drafts that Tocqueville did for democracy in America. Why does he enter politics? I mean, he's such an amazing scholar. Why does he feel the need to do more than write about democracy and actually participate in it? Well, in some ways, I don't know. But the thing is, he did. He wrote to his old friend, Kergorle, a childhood friend and cousin, don't imagine that I have a passion for the intellectual life. I want to be a man of action. He sent a copy of Democracy in America to one of his cousins who was vice president of the French chamber and said, Please be indulgent because, you know, I have no political experience. This is the work only of a theorist, you know. I have no practical experience. So maybe I'm not saying the right thing. But then by the time he got into politics, he was really disappointed by the kind of a low quality of political discourse in the chamber. Nonetheless, he kept pushing and pushing. He was not a good orator. So as opposed to us today, where we have speakers and amplifiers and so on and so forth, when you were in the chamber in 1835, you know, you better shout. 
because otherwise nobody hears you. And he was not successful at it, but yet he was respected for his deep intelligence. So people kept returning to him, asking him his advice, uh, at least some did. He wanted to make a difference. He didn't want to be uh, a desk chair theorist. Uh, he fought in electoral politics, and for a long time during his political career, it was July monarchy politics, so it was a high franchise. So, you know, there was only a few hundred voters in his department, in his region. But then he fought in the first white male universal suffrage campaign in 1848, and he won. And he rose to the occasion. He gave actually some really good public speeches. He was a wonderful speaker, one-on-one or in the salons or whatever, conversationalist, but he was not a good public speaker, but he was to the occasion in 1848. So he eventually becomes disillusioned with politics. You write in the book, he ended his life with the realization that political science and the art of governing were two very different things after all. I mean, it makes me wonder whether Tocqueville's time in politics was really just a waste. Well, I don't think it was a waste at all, actually, because of the two things. First of all, yes, he was disillusioned, but then he recovered from it, and he told his colleagues in the French Academy that even the great Montesquieu would have been a bad minister, you know? But, <laughs> but, but the, the, the point is uh, that I think uh, his uh, political experience helped him greatly with uh, writing well, his souvenirs of the 1848 revolution, to be sure, but that's not a manuscript he wanted to publish, but help him write the Ancien Regime in the French Revolution. Uh, he had a much better sense of what was going on in the uh, French Constituent Assembly during the revolution. He had a much better sense of the coming of the revolution and the work of the politicians with that experience that he would have had otherwise. The tragedy here is that we couldn't see it because he died so young of tuberculosis when he was 53. He really wanted to somehow understand and explain the French tragic cycle of fighting for a revolution in the name of equality and ending up in returning to despotism and dictatorship. The French Revolution happening and turning into the Napoleonic Empire, that is the great uh, despotic revolution. The restoration of the monarchy and in beginning as a constitutional monarchy, but ending up as an autocratic monarchy, which led to yet another revolution. And then a repeat of that at the end of the July monarchy with the 1848 revolution. So if you wrote the constitution of it, and then the 1848 revolution ended up in Napoleon III. Napoleon's nephew, a coup in 1851, and the restoration of an autocratic, despotic regime with the Second Empire, and the resignation of Tocqueville from all political life. So Tocqueville really wanted to figure out this cycle of democratization and collapse of democracy, which was a French malady, couldn't be understood as one episode, like the revolution going to the Napoleonic Empire because it happened again and again in Tocqueville's life. So the book on the Ancien Regime and the French Revolution was only to be the introduction to this longer volume, explaining this cycle. And Tocqueville only left reading notes for it. He could have never write it. But I think if he had been able to write it, his experience as a politician would have been immensely valuable. 
Still, I mean, the Ancien Regime and the French Revolution is one of the great classics of political thought. Absolutely. Yeah, even to this day. How do people in France think about de Tocqueville, and is it different than how Americans think about him? Well, it's very different because, for whatever reason, which I've lived with all my life since I'm a French immigrant and I've spent my life teaching American history and writing about American history until I wrote this book on French American history. But the French may have a fascination with the United States, talk about it all the time. They don't know it very well. And they read Tocqueville mostly as a French person who wrote about the Ancien Regime. One of the interesting things, you know, the first two chapters of my book are Tocqueville's travels throughout America, not only what he saw, but all what he missed. And he missed a lot. He didn't understand evangelical religion. I mean, I go on and on and on with all what he missed. To the French, it's a real surprise. They thought he had America. (laughs) Conversely, Americans have no idea about the French Tocqueville. Very few. Some of the scholars among Americans have read the Ancien Regime, but very few people know that he had a political career and that he was very much into reforming France, trying to restore the church influence and the independence of teaching, all of that. His work in colonization, his work in the abolition of slavery, they kind of go against one another because Tocqueville was both a colonizer and an abolitionist. So go figure. So that Tocqueville is unknown in this country. But I was writing a biography, so I was not writing a book just on democracy in America. (laughs) And I think the two Tocquevilles are really the same person. What amazes me about de Tocqueville is how perceptive he really was about both democracy and the United States, not just for his time, but in a way that kind of transcended time. I mean, it took years, decades, maybe even a century, before we really came to any writers after Tocqueville that wrote anything that compared to democracy in America for what it was trying to achieve, just to explain the way that democracy worked in the United States. James Bryce, for instance, wrote two-volume set, The American Commonwealth, and it lives in the shadow of Democracy America, even though it was written about 60 years afterwards. But at the same time, a lot's changed. I mean, we're starting to approach almost 200 years since the publication of Democracy in America. Are the writings of de Tocqueville, are they still relevant for the study of politics in the 21st century? Yes, very much so. And they are very much important for us not so much because of the description of America that exists in the book, and James Bryce is a book of description, not of analysis, but because of the theoretical construction, this deep connection between equality and liberty, the framing of modern history as a conflict between the two, the sense that democracy is fragile and rests on the habit of liberty rather than the wish of it, that one knows how to limit itself, to limit liberty in order to keep it. Because if you exceed it and take over, you don't respect differences and whatever. That all of this deep thought animates us today, just like they animated us earlier. And you asked me, you know, whether Aristotle is, is relevant. And you asked me whether Augustine is relevant. You asked me whether Rousseau is relevant. Yes, of course they are. And so is Tocqueville. But it's because this is much more of a book of theory than it is a book of description. Well, 
Thank you so much, Olivier, for uh, joining me today. I want to plug your book one last time, The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.